Maybe you can turn that down a little bit. One of the uh, weird things about public speaking is hearing yourself on the mic amped up. One of many. Um, all right, the book of Esther, just some, some history since it's been a couple weeks since we've been here. Esther takes place following the 70 years of Babylonian captivity. So you have the Jews that have been exiled out of um, the nation of Israel, taken into captivity. You have them, still many of them, um, living in Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, which is now the Persian Empire, because... Um, well, let me just stick to my notes. Um, many Jews post um, the Babylonian conquering were assimilated into Babylon. And if you remember, even some of those were working within the kingdom. You think of people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, and then sometime 539 BC, the king of Persia comes, he overthrows Babylon. That whole story about damming up the river um, while the Babylonian king, King Nebuchadnezzar, is partying. Um, and that whole story about how they came in through the river canal and took over the kingdom. And then under the king of Persia, um, he allows the Jews to begin to return back to their homeland. Uh, the first return was under Zerubbabel. That was sometime 536 B.C. The second return was really under Ezra, and the whole theme there was to go back and build the temple. And then the third return was under Nehemiah, and if you remember, the theme of Nehemiah is to go back and build the walls. So in the, in the timeline of things, the book of Esther, or the story of Esther, takes place between the second and third um, return. There is many Jews still living in captivity, some of them um, choosing to do so. And if you think about it, some of them, their whole life may have been spent in captivity in that region. That's, that's all they know. That's, that's what they consider home. Um, and so uh, multiple Jews still even in the area of Shushan. Um, today's reading we're going to read two chapters here, so don't zone out on me as we read the whole of chapter 3 and 4. Um, let's get into that, and then we'll, we'll take off from there. Esther chapter 3 and verse 1. And after these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. Then the king's servants, which were in the king's gate, said unto Mordecai, Why transgressest thou the king's commandment? Now it came to pass, when they spake daily unto him, that he hearkened not unto them, that they told Haman, to see whether Mordecai's matters would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, 
Then was Haman full of wrath. And he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai. Therefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. In the first month, so um, just a little commentary in verse 6 there. So basically what Haman is realizing is that if Mordecai, that he can't just deal with Mordecai. If Mordecai won't bow because of his Jewish background, because of his Jewish religion, then just dealing with Mordecai isn't going to solve this problem of people reverencing him. He's realizing here, if I'm going to solve this problem, I'm going to have to wipe out all the Jews. That's the thought process of this, of this man. In the first month, verse 7, in the first month, that is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, the lot, before, before Haman from day to day and from month to month to the twelfth month, that is, the month Adar. And Haman said unto King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the providences of thy kingdom. And their laws are diverse from all people, neither keep they the king's laws. Therefore, it is not for the king's profit to suffer them. If it please the king, let it be written that they may be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver to the hands of those that have the charge of the business to bring it unto the king's treasuries. And the king took his ring from his hand and gave it unto Haman, the son of Hamath, Hamathadatha, the Agagite, the Jew's enemy. And the king said unto Haman, The silver is given to thee, the people also, to do with them as it seemeth good to thee. Then were the king's scribes called on the thirteenth day of the first month, and there was written according to all that Haman had commanded unto the king's lieutenants and to the governors that were over every providence, and to the rulers of every people of every providence, according to the writing thereof, and to every people after their language, in the name of King Ahasuerus, was it written, and sealed with the king's ring. And the letters were sent by post unto all the king's providences, to destroy, to kill, and to cause to perish all Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in the day, even upon the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month Adar, and to take the spoil of them for a prey. The copy of the writing for a commandment was given in every providence, was published unto all people, that they should be ready against that day. The post went out, being hastened by the king's commandment, and the decree was given in Shushan the palace, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city Shushan was perplexed. Chapter 4. When Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry and came even before the king's gate, for none might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every providence whither the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews and fasting and weeping and wailing and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Esther's maids and her chamberlain, chamberlains came and told it her. Then was the queen exceedingly grieved, and she sent raiment to clothe Mordecai and to take away 
his sackcloth from him, for he received it not. But he received it not. Then called Esther to Hatach, one of the king's chamberlains, whom he had appointed to attend upon her, and gave him a commandment to Mordecai to know what it was and why it was. So Hatach went forth to Mordecai into the street of the city, which was before the king's gate. And Mordecai told him of all that had happened unto him and of the sum of the money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the Jews to destroy them. And he gave him a copy of the writing of the decree that was given at Shushan to destroy them, to show it unto Esther and to declare it unto her and to charge her that she should go in unto the king to make supplication unto him and to make requests before him for her people. And Hatach came and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Again, Esther spake unto Hatach and gave him commandment unto Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's providences do know that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come unto the king into the inner court who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter, that he may live. But I have not been called to come in unto the king these thirty days. And they told to Mordecai Esther's words. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place, but thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed, and who knoweth whither thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther bade them return Mordecai this answer, Go, gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan, and fast ye for me, and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day, I also and my maidens will fast likewise, and so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. Lots of reading there, but kind of needed to cover that to cover all the context of today. Um, if we think about where chapter 3 takes off here, there's likely been a number of years since Esther has been queen that have passed. Um, you know, we, just like between chapter 1 and 2, there was a number of years that had passed um, between King Ahasuerus getting rid of his former queen and seeking another one, and likely Esther has been queen for... Um, a number of years between chapter 2 and 3. And this man, Haman, has come onto the scene and has advanced. This has given him time to advance in the kingdom. And he's placed over all the princes of the 127 providences of the kingdom. So he's um, really, uh, really key in directing the things um, of the of the kingdom, and he's over these 127 princes that are over different providences throughout the kingdom. Um, and 
through this process, at some point the king has commanded that um, all the people and all the servants bow down to this man Haman. Um, and we saw in our reading there that Mordecai refuses to do this. And we see there in verse 4, and we kind of commented on this in the reading, but at the end of verse 4, um, we see the reason that Mordecai won't bow, and he says, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And so Mordecai had this conviction, being a Jew, being a follower of Jesus, that he um, wouldn't bow down and reverence anybody but his God. And this was a conviction that he was willing to stand on. Um, Haman, who's over all these people who didn't even notice that this man Mordecai wasn't bowing down until these other servants pointed out, um, he grows angry over this. Um, and he realizes, as he looks into this, that Mordecai will not bow because he was a Jew. And as we could, gave some commentary to already, um, he thought it scorn, he thought it foolish, there in verse 6, to just lay hands on Mordecai, because if Mordecai's conviction to not bow down was to reverence his God, then other Jews who, who were still holding true to the scripture and had these convictions would not bow down either. And so if he was going to deal with this problem, he saw that he was going to have to deal with all the Jews and not just with Mordecai. Um, so let's take some, we're gonna, what we're going to do <clears throat> is there are some really good pictures as we walk through this story in chapter 3 and 4 that can apply to our Christian life here today. And so we're going to make some of those um, connections as we walk through this. Um, but before we do that, I wanted you just to note this map here of the Persian Empire. And some of these landmarks change a little bit from century to century, but um, for the most part, this was the scope of the empire at this time. And the reason I point this out, because sometimes uh, we can uh, kind of be short-sighted in thinking, well, these Jews that have been condemned in this kingdom, why don't they just escape, right? But much of the then-known world was under Persian control. And it wasn't just as, simply as, as simple as uh, packing up your things and jumping the border. That This was what, what you're looking at due to the scope of this empire was the Jewish people really being wiped out, being eliminated. Um, and so um, just wanted to put this map up here to kind of connect you with how vast that empire was and the impact that this had on these Jews as they heard this news. Um, the first thing we want to look at here, there's uh, six points. Hopefully we get through them all. Who's, who's giving me these lessons? There's six points here. 
And the first one is that we see, the first point here is that we see a people who are condemned to die. We see that in verses 8 through 15 as Haman bends the king's ear. And what we know about King Ahasuerus is that um, he's given to extremes. We cover that in lesson one and two. And it doesn't seem that he even inquires about who these people are, about what the extent of this would be, but he just um, basically tells Haman, make it so, make it happen. Like, if this is true and it's not in the best interest of my kingdom, make it happen. And so we see here a people that are condemned to die. If you look in verse 13, it really sums it up, and it says, And the letters were sent by post unto all the king's providences to destroy, to kill, and to cause to perish all Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, even upon the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month Adar, and to take the spoil of them for a prey. So let's put ourselves here. We, we're very familiar with this story, but let's put ourselves here in the shoes of these people. This news comes out, and as you hear the news and pause in your day, um, you think about your grandmother, uh, who told you stories of your granddad and stories of, of um, his upbringing and their early years together. She's condemned to die. Your mother, who nursed you, who dressed you, who sympathized with you, who kissed your little owies, laughed with you, is condemned to die. Your father, whose firm, loving hand guided you and shared with you all he knew, is condemned to die. Your brother, who you fought with and who you fought for and who you played with and who you learn to love is condemned to die. Your sister, condemned to die. The neighbor, friend next door of your same background and religion is condemned to die. Mordecai, when he hears this news, realizes that his family, his Jewish friends, um, all the people that he's loved are condemned to die. And it would have been a very sobering day as this news comes to the different outreaches of the kingdom that on the 13th day of Adar, that um, your time is up, that, you, um, that your days are numbered, so to speak. And if we make an application to today's world, mankind 
um, aside from Jesus Christ is condemned to die. We think about, you can think about your fathers. We think about fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, grandparents. Outside of Christ are all condemned to die. Um, and there's something about living life where that's, that sometimes just kind of becomes um, something that we don't think about or something that we don't uh, ponder. But your lost relatives, your lost friends, um, are condemned to die. John 3.18, we're all familiar with that verse. It tells us, He that believeth on him, speaking about Jesus Christ, is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The analogy here is that your lost loved one, or you yourself, if you sit here this morning lost, it's not that you're under condemnation sometime in the future. But John tells us it condemned already. It's as if you got this letter that's come from Shushan the palace that has your end written on it. It's not as if, well, I've got, I've got this time to think about this or, or when the end comes if I haven't reckoned with God. No, Scripture tells us that in this moment you have a condemnation sentence upon you. Romans 5.12 tells us, So death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Romans 5.18 told us, Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. And Romans 3.19 tells us that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Mankind, if you're here today lost, you are, before God, you are already condemned. If you have loved ones, co-workers, neighbors, we need to see them as being condemned. So we see here, a people who are condemned. The second point we see here is that this announcement of condemnation, it brought great concern. It created a stir. We pick that up in chapter 4, in the first three verses there. It tells us, When Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry. This man's making a scene. It's not like he went into his neighborhood or went into his house and put on sackcloth and ashes in his mourning. This man is willing to make a public demonstration of this. He's going about the city crying with a loud and bitter cry and came even before the king's gate for none might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. 
He knows he can't go in through the gate, but he is willing in making this scene to go up to the king's gate where he's going to get some publicity, so to speak. And in every providence, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews and fasting and weeping and wailing and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. We see here that this news, this condemnation, brought great concern. And when we crosswalk that and apply that to our life today, we need to be concerned over the condemnation of sin. Um, turn, with me, turn with me quickly over to Romans chapter 10. We see here in Romans chapter 10 um, some of the concern that Paul had over people who are condemned, particularly over his own countrymen. Paul says here in Romans 10.1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Do we have any concern? over those who are condemned? Or has it just become routine, um, routine, you know, knowledge that something that we lost the, the concern, lost the urgency? Uh, we're here in Romans. Look over in chapter 9, verse 2 and 3. Paul again says, That I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Mordecai was concerned, and not just concerned over his own demise, but really Mordecai's concern goes greater for, for the whole, for all of his people. And the question here is, do you, do I, have a concern for people, and one that will cause me to speak up, one that will cause me to uh, make a scene, so to speak, as Mordecai did. Psalms 126, verses 5 and 6 tell us, They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and, we he that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. And so the, the concern this morning is may God work in, in our hearts and break our hearts around for us, in us, for those people around us that are condemned to die. May the condemnation upon our family members who are lost cause our heart to ache and our knees to bow. May the condemned state of our friends, of our co-workers, of those people in our sphere of influence, may, may that concern spur us to reach them for Christ. The announcement of condemnation brought great concern. 
But also we see here somebody who had, uh, who seemed indifferent or had a lack of concern. We see Esther here in um, chapter 4 and verses 4 and 5. We see Esther who seems to either not know or if knowing, just have a lack of concern. In verses 4 and 5 there of chapter 4, it says, So Esther's maids and her chamberlains came and told it her. The told it her was, was telling her what Mordecai was doing. And remember, if you remember from, from the previous lesson, that Mordecai is her uncle, but really Mordecai took her in and was, was, her father, was her father figure to her. And so this news comes to her so, and, uh, and told her, Then was the queen exceedingly grieved, and she sent raiment to clothe Mordecai and to take away his sackcloth from him, but he refused, he, but he received it not. Then called Esther to Hatach, one of the king's chamberlains, whom he had appointed to attend upon her, and gave him a commandment to Mordecai to know what it was and why it was. Here, um, Esther's people are condemned to, get, to die. And here, um, Esther is in a position where um, she can perhaps make a difference. Um, and on that point, it's no, it's no coincidence that you live where you live, that you have the connections that you have. It's no coincidence that you have met the people that you know. We all would admit that we've been, served to, we've been saved to serve and that we are to be a witness to those we know. And it may be that um, God has placed us where he has to intervene for those around us. But we see here that Esther um, is grieved, but seems to be grieved about Mordecai's behavior. And so she sends him these clothing down because uh, we're conjecturing giving some conjecture here, but it seems that she's more concerned with his appearance, with the scene he's making, with the connection to her, and so she sends him down these clothes to, hey, go get yourself changed, get yourself cleaned up, because um, my name's tied to you. Because we see, until he refuses it, that she doesn't inquire why he's behaving the way he's behaving. Um... She either hadn't heard of the decree, um, and if she hadn't, was it because she was, I mean, she's living there in the palace, was she really not in the know? Was, was she not paying attention? We don't, we don't really know those things. Or did she know and not, not consider the significance of it? We don't know, but for, for whatever reason, she doesn't seem to be in the know. And um, she's embarrassed or seems to be concerned that Mordecai is making this scene. 
And sometimes when we apply that to our own life, we can be uh, ashamed and even sometimes want to distance ourselves from those people who are really stirred up about the condemnation of their friends, that are stirred up about the condemnation of their loved ones, and that are willing to maybe make a little bit of a scene. Um, you know, we sometimes uh, respond to that with, um, you know, you, you can be a little too fanatical, you know. Uh, you know, we need to be tactful, or we need, and, and not that you shouldn't have some tact, right? But we need to be, uh, we need to be careful that we don't offend so-and-so. That we don't offend our auntie and uncle who are Lutheran or Catholic or whatever they hold to. You know, we just need to kind of avoid that. We don't, we don't want any confrontation here. Or sometimes we respond with, well, let's just let God deal with them. Um, or sometimes we treat those people who are um, sinners and who are in need of Christ, we treat them as if they're someone with a cancer. We whisper and we keep quiet because we don't want them to know how bad the outcome could be. Um, there's some cancers that we don't have a cure for. But the curse of sin is a cancer that's curable, and we, we have the cure. Esther seems to initially have a lack of concern for the seriousness of the matter. But what we also see here is that what we also see here is that when you live among people that are condemned to die, it's time to take a stand. If you wonder about when the time to take a stand was, we would all agree that at this point in Esther's life, this was the time to take a stand. When you live among people condemned to die, it's time to take a stand. We see this dialogue pick up in verse 14, where Mordecai replies to her, and he says, For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed, and who knoweth whither thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther's people were condemned to die. God had seemingly put her in a place where she could potentially make the difference. And again, it's no coincidence that God has placed us where he's placed us for the ability to make a difference. And it may be that we are where we're at 
in our life, with our connections. For, as Mordecai said, for such a time as this. It may be that God has brought someone into your life who this very day is searching for the Lord. And who is in the best position to share the gospel with them? We all know, um, we've all heard of the evangelist Billy Sunday. Um, and this illustration here says that one day, a woman approached the evangelist Billy Sunday about coming home with her to speak to her husband about the need to be saved. The woman was saved herself. She knew how to be saved. She knew the gospel message. Yet she had never shared it with her husband. When she asked Billy Sunday to go, he refused, which upon first glance might cause us to be like, well, that wasn't very considerate. But he refused to go, telling her that if her husband was going to listen, he would be more likely to listen to her, whom he had lived with for 14 years, than Mr. Sunday, who he had never met before. And um, if we're not careful, we can kind of get in the same way of thinking, right? Well, I need to get this person to church. I need to uh, see if pastor will have a Bible study with this person. And not that those are not, um, you know, not that those are not valuable in some cases, but who are they most likely to listen to? Who are they most connected with? Um, but you see, the, uh, the issue or the concern is, is um, who is most likely to um, suffer from that relationship going one way or the other? And we're not willing, as Esther had this concern for her own self here, we're not willing to put ourselves in a position where we have to take a stand. And that's where Esther found herself. Well, if there's any time to take a stand, living among a people condemned to die is the time to take a stand. You know, God, as Mordecai indicates here, God is not limited in getting his message out if you will not be the one to do it. And God is, ra is able to raise up another one to do your job. But his first choice in some people's lives is you, is me. And am I willing to step into that will of God? Esther's refusal was going to affect her and her father's house. And our lack of witnessing um, or our lack of witness to fulfill the place in the kingdom for such a time as this will affect you and will affect your family. And as I was studying this, you know, I was just thinking about you tend to look at things a little different 
after you're married and as you have, as you have children. Um, but your willingness to be obedient to God and even your willingness to be a witness, your, your spouse and your child or children, they're going to they're gonna note that. They're going to watch that or your lack thereof. And it's going to have an impact on their lives and how they serve, given that God saves their soul. If you look over in Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 3, this is a passage of scripture that typically gets used in evangelism. But it, the context, the, the content here applies to what we're speaking about today. Here in Ezekiel, the prophet said in verse 17, Son of man, I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore hear the word at my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say unto the wicked, thou shalt surely die, condemned. And thou givest him no, not warning, nor speakest to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life. The same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Yet if thou warn the wicked, and he turn not from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. Um, in the context of evangelism, that there is some accountability for the witness or the lack of witness that we have for Christ. The time to stand is when people are condemned. And then, number five here, um, that in order to play a part in delivering a condemned people, there must be a surrender of the will, a surrender of my will. Verse 15 and 16 reflects this. Then Esther bade them return Mordecai this answer. So she's come to a conclusion, and she's sending her answer back to Mordecai. And this is the conclusion. She says, Go, gather all the Jews that are present in Sushan, and fast ye for me, and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also with my maidens will fast likewise, and so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. We see here that Esther, in her surrender, was going to do what she had in her power to do, and she was going to leave the rest to God. And here we see that Esther was going to put her people's needs before her own need. Um, we see some of the context of this decision back up there in, in verse 11. And we're going to read that verse and then give a little commentary here. So in verse 11 it says, All the king's servants and the people of the king's providences do know. So this was a well-known fact or well-known law. Do know that whosoever, whether man or woman, 
shall come unto the king into the inner court, who is not called, there was one law of his to put him to death. That the standard was that this person would be put to death. Except there's one exception, which the way this sounds is that um, this exception was not common. Except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter, that he may live. But I have not been called to come in unto the king these thirty days. The commentary on this says, At Esther's command, Hatach was to return to Mordecai and tell him that all the people within the Persian Empire, including all the king's servants, know that the king has only one law for any man or woman who goes to the king without being called first. That law stated that such a person must be put to death unless the king holds out his golden scepter to them. If the king does, then that person will live. Certainly, Mordecai also knew about this law, which means that he carefully pondered his request before sending it to Esther. But the Jews, but for the Jews, this was a desperate situation, and Esther was the one person in a position to do something about it. Once again, in human history, one person could change the circumstances. In Middle Eastern culture, all kings were protected against unwanted visitors. This is also true in our world today. For example, one cannot simply walk into the White House and the Oval Office without permission. It is also true that if you were walking menacingly towards the White House, Especially, in, especially after January 6th, huh? and refused to stop when ordered, you could be shot on the spot. In our country, the First Lady can walk into the presence of the President without permission, but Esther couldn't do that with her husband, the King. Therefore, she entered, she sent her message back to Mordecai, saying, But I have not been called to come in unto the King these thirty days. Esther had not been called or summoned by the king to come into his presence in the last 30 days. It sounds like this was unusual, as if she was normally called before him more often. We are not told why she had not been summoned by the king during this period, but maybe she thought that he was displeased with her for some unknown reason. It may have been possible for Esther to go and be announced by the guards. But if she did that, a reason for coming might be required. But she could not risk that either. Haman, the one who had plotted to destroy the Jews, was so close to the king that Esther didn't dare let, let the king know ahead of time that she, what she intended to request of him. There didn't seem to be any way out of this situation. She would have to risk stepping into the inner court with the king, where the king was seated without prior announcement. When all she could do was wait, to, then all she could do was wait to see if the golden scepter would be extended toward her. Esther was truly in a life or death predicament. And so we see here that there was a surrender of her will to 
attempt this thing knowing that there was some risk and um, multiple ways that we could apply that to our own witness. The last point here is the result of taking our place in the kingdom for such a time as this. This was a decision that lasted for a lifetime. If you quickly turn over to chapter 8, we're kind of jumping ahead in the story as we wrap this up. But we see here that her decision to do so had a lasting effect for a lifetime and even, in many ways, till present day. Esther 8 and verse 8 tells us, um, kind of picking up in the middle of the story here, but most of you know the context. It tells us, Write ye also for the Jews. So this is a command from the king. Write ye also for the Jews as it liketh you in the king's name and seal it with the king's ring for the writing which is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's ring may no man reverse. The context here is the king instituted a new law allowing for the protection of the Jews and that law could not be reversed. You know, uh, one of the analogies we can make with this is that salvation by the Lord, of the Lord, is never reversed. When, the, when this decree was written and signed by the king, knowing the way the laws worked back then, laws could not be repealed. You had to make another law to counter it. And so this law says here, may no man reverse. And when we apply that to the Christian's life, the work of witnessing for the Lord, soul, a soul being saved from that, uh, has eternal benefits. It cannot be reversed. Um, we see here in verses 15 through 17 that this news brought great joy. And Mordecai, uh, eight, chapter 8 and verse 15, And Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white and a great crown of gold and with a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every providence and in every city whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a good day, and many of the people of the land became Jews for fear of the Jews who fell upon them. We, you know, we painted the picture at the beginning of what it would have been like to receive that news of condemnation. And if you think about being that Jewish boy or girl in the outreaches of the kingdom as this good news comes, the impact that that would have on your life. No longer condemned. The work of bringing souls to Christ allows you to experience times of great gladness and joy. And it results in other people wanting to join in God's work no longer condemned. Um, and if you think back to your own 
salvation time, the joy that came when you surrendered your will and were no longer condemned. And so there's really two, if we were to sum this up in two, um, in two points here, the really one is, is if you are here today and you're lost, you're, you're condemned. The writer has rode into your little town and the condemnation statement is there. And it may have not come yet, but it is there. And you are condemned and you need to deal with your condemnation. And then for the saved man, the question is, who in your sphere of influence, or maybe that's multiple people, who has God placed in your life, or what circumstance has God placed in your life for such a time as this? And will you surrender your will? And again, very challenging to study this because sometimes we become guilty of living cultural Christianity ourselves and begin to lose connection or grow cold to uh, the people around us. Particularly, I find this in my life with people that you know longer, that maybe once you had a concern for, and um, that concern kind of just grows cold, uh, and we need to do a gut check or allow the Spirit of God to examine us for are we living uh, to our potential of such a time as this. All right, I've taken you over time. I blame that on the author of the lessons.